And I think the hard part was there were actually some staff members that were not in favor of having a gender neutral restroom. Right? Like some of our own teachers don't even think we should have this. And so we had to have, you know, really courageous conversations around I know that. the first two years I was in the classroom, I didn't tell any kids that I was gay ever. Um, and it was something that I knew that I could be fired. And then I think about the youth that I served in my classroom and what that meant, um, what that could have been to say, oh, someone else is brave and, and speaking out about who they are. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is All of the Above, your home for news and analysis of all things related to education. Jeff, do you notice I sound a, um, a little bit different today? I do. I, I don't know if you notice, but at least inside my head, I sound a little bit different today, too. It's been uh, yeah. the plague has come. It's that time of year. Yes. It's that time of year. <laughs> Kids got me sick, man. Kids got me sick. Yeah, man. Come back from winter break and it's like a Petri dish. Man. All right. Going to power through, though. Yes. Uh, Jeff, what's on today's agenda? Oh, man. Well, as always, we got a good one. And I am I'm actually especially, especially more than usual um, excited about today's topic. Uh, we have two incredible guests coming in, uh, Emily Grijalva um, and Aaron Whalen, who are two fantastic educators uh, here in the Los Angeles area. Um, and they're going to help us unpack, I think, one of the more interesting discussions. You know, we sort of pride ourselves on being a source for conversation about topics in education that don't get discussed. And right. I think that's true. And I think this topic in particular is one that um, is really not covered enough and not unpacked enough um, in our kind of mainstream discussion. And that is the ways in which our schools do and do not serve LGBTQ plus students well. Mm. Uh, mm. So we're going to get into those issues today, going to think about um, not only how we're kind of serving the, the developmental needs um, of our LGBTQ right. plus students, um, but also the visibility of uh, the community in the curriculum and then the kind of lived experience of students on school campuses. So mm. it's going to be a good one today. I'm looking forward to that. It sounds like it's in keeping with our um, mission to only invite dope educators oh we got the dopeness coming we got our show. double dopeness coming into the studio today <laughs> nice yes can't complain all right but up first is our do now where we'll take a look at recent headlines in education stay tuned all right now it's time for today's do now jeff how are we doing the do now today well man well uh you know we're back uh, from vacation and yeah. uh, second semester has begun, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I think just about every corner of the country and it is time to take attendance, time to uh, see who's on the new roster, see yeah. who's in the house. If Those mid-year roster changes. Man. I know, man. I know. All right. Just one or two changes can upset the whole thing. It, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. So let's see who's first on our roster for today. Jeff, we have Greta. Greta. Yes. Yeah. Do you know which Greta I'm talking about? I do know which Greta which you're Greta talking, about. talking about. I think she actually pronounces it Greta. Oh, does when she? I hear her speak. Well, I like yeah. That. I'm not going to try it's that. Like but... I, I'm working on my little Swedish accent here. Dope. <laughs> Dope. All right. How do you say her last name? Thunberg? Thunberg. Doon oh, nice. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, this story is in reference to sort of a, a, a response to the increase in climate activism that we've seen across the globe. And New Zealand is stepping to the plate with a change to its curriculum or to what schools teach in response to some of this activism that we've seen from the likes of Greta and others with regards to our current climate crisis. So according to a story by Charlotte Graham McLeay for The Guardian, this year, every school in New Zealand will have access to materials about the climate crisis written by the country's leading science agencies, including tools for students to plan their own activism and to process their feelings of quote-unquote eco-anxiety over global heating. The curriculum will put New Zealand at the forefront of climate change education worldwide. And James Shaw, New England's climate change minister, says, quote, one of the pieces of feedback we've got from teachers around the country is that they're really crying out for something like this because kids are already in the conversation about climate change. 
a pilot of this curriculum, which ran in one school in the city of Christchurch in 2018, led to the introduction of materials for the national rollout that helped students process their emotions about the climate issue. Jeff, what do you think about New Zealand uh, rolling out this uh, curriculum in response to global heating? So I absolutely love it. Uh, probably couldn't love it any more than one mm. could possibly love a policy decision. Uh, it's fantastic. And I think, uh, yet again, it is an example of the nation of New Zealand, which, you know, as a wealthier nation in the world, mm. uh, I'm sure has plenty of challenges, right? Right. Um, but has shown the ability um, around gun control and now around, you know, helping to address uh, public consciousness and awareness of the climate crisis of taking swift, thoughtful, prudent political action and actually right. getting stuff done, right? So props to uh, to the powers that be in New Zealand um, on this front. Um, I think on the one hand, it's incredibly important from a just a literacy standpoint mm -hmm. for a nation to be empowering its young people with the knowledge and skills they need to solve the key critical problems of their generation, right? Which, um, you yeah. know, of course, is going to be addressing the effects of climate change. On the other hand, I was actually really surprised that um, much of the thrust of this policy is about helping students deal with the uh, sort of emotional stress yeah. uh, of learning about climate change, which to be honest, I hadn't, you know, hadn't been in my head as like, the major thing for us to figure out yeah um but i thought it was it was really interesting and really pushed my thinking about like okay so this is really like st we're going to study doomsday <laughs> right 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 uh and you know we need to come equipped with helping kids manage the process of fear and anxiety and stress um in a world where you know for them just to hop skip and a jump over some water is essentially a subcontinent on fire right right, right. so um so yeah i, I love it um and yeah. i hope we can learn something from them yeah i'm glad you pointed that out the the idea that you know i it's one thing to teach about the fact that the climate is changing and this crisis is upon us um but what's especially awesome about this curriculum is that it's adding those added elements of for one processing the added anxiety and stress that youngsters for sure are feeling and also there's elements of the curriculum that focus on student activism and and what can be done right now about it so it's not just teaching like oh we're 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 doomed but also here are some things that we can do about it right now so that this isn't just a, a fatalistic curriculum that just leaves everybody feeling like it's a wrap yeah. So I definitely love that. Um, the climate change minister, James Shaw, who we mentioned earlier, um, is quoted in this article in The Guardian saying that being in the conversation itself causes stress and the students are going to be delving into bad news of science explaining the climate crisis. But the resources have been bolstered with, quote, quite an emphasis on talking through with students how they're feeling about it. That part, talking through with students, I think could be a, an important could be an important element, not just for this curriculum, but a lot of the stuff that students are learning in schools. Uh, I know as a U.S. history teacher, learning about slavery and learning about the violence of, of the past is like, can't just be focused on the, the negative and right. the, uh, the violence of it, but also like, how can we process these feelings and these emotions that we experience in learning about this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to live in that place of hopelessness uh, with right. with kids, but we do need to confront these sober, you know, realities, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it sounds really thoughtfully done to me. I'm sure it's not without it, you know, controversy on some level. Oh, but sure. um, I mean, hey, if if the United States did this, you know, it'd be a game changer, right? I'm sure we're probably pretty close to a, a national curriculum that addresses climate climate change. Do you not think communist, that communist, communist Obama, Red Scare? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think we're anywhere near that as a nation. But I know definitely, definitely um, states are looking. I mean, yeah. California has, has, has um, done quite a bit to address how its curriculum uh, responds to environmental uh, change and, and, and what have you. So, yeah, but nationally, nah. shout out to New Zealand and right. all the activists out there helping make this happen. All right, Jeff. Who else do we have in the house today? All right. Next up, Manuel, uh, is special education teachers. Oh, that's a lot of them, Jeff. And I'm sure they are all um, fully supported in their roles and that everything is going fine with that 
regard. So there's great. almost nothing that you just said that is true at all. <laughs> uh, there's there's not nearly enough of them. <laughs> they're not particularly well supported, and their jobs are so stressful that many of them are leaving. Uh, so uh, you know, let's get into yeah. this. Uh, so. Um, we're discussing today an article by Diana Lambert uh, that appeared in EdSource, uh, who's reporting uh, particularly on California, although the same can be said of many states around the country, um, that of course there's a statewide teacher shortage we're grappling with. But in the midst of that, um, many of California's 800,000 special education students are being taught by teachers who haven't completed their teacher preparation program yet, or who have received only partial training, right? Um, so according to the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing, about 60% of first year special ed teachers were working without a full SPED teaching credential. Um, this is the highest number that we've seen on that front in a decade. Um, and there are all kinds of ripple effects from this, right? Um, people who are less prepared for the job tend to stay in the job for shorter periods of time and increase turnover. So there's a compounding effect. Folks who are uh, perhaps less trained and prepared for the job can be less effective in meeting the needs of students. And right. in the field of special education, we're talking about students who have you know, documented uh, particular special needs um, right. that should require special training. Right. So uh, we're in this situation, uh, particularly uh, in in the uh, domain of special ed where need is greatest and the teaching skill experience resources uh, certainly are not matching the yeah. need right now. So, Manuel, um, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, it's really I mean, it's troubling. It's not a surprise. I think anybody who works with schools knows that. Um, special ed teachers are some of the highest need teachers with regards to like actually filling those spots and supporting them. Some of my favorite teachers are special ed teachers who have told me that they wish they could really focus on teaching the curriculum. However, they're so um, underwater with so much paperwork, so many uh, IEP meetings and, and such a lack of support that it's like the teaching the curriculum becomes secondary. And when you're doing that to a teacher, it's it's no surprise that they're not going to stick around for long. And then if teachers aren't sticking around for long, then there are going to be um, vacancies. And if there's vacancies, there's going to be a push to try to fill those vacancies. And now you have people coming in to fill the vacancies who haven't even finished their credentialing programs yet. So um, as um, you know, this is a we pulled this from an article in uh, EdSource by Diana Lambert. Uh, she quotes uh, California State Board of Education President uh, Linda Darling Hammond, um, one of the goats, I should say, uh, one of the goats in one of the education goats. research. Yeah. Um, who pointed out that underprepared teachers are much more likely to resort to uh, suspensions and, and, and other things that just try to survive. And that's not good for the teacher or the school and most especially for for the student. And it's it's really troubling that, you know, when we talk about supporting teachers, when we talk about teacher compensation and we talk about all the you know teacher strikes that um, across the nation, uh, what, two years ago now um, or a year ago, actually, for, yeah. for Los Angeles uh, Unified School District. Um, sometimes we talk about teachers as like a monolithic group, like all teachers need uh, more compensation, more of this, more of that. And that is true. However, there are segments of teachers that are in a special amount of need for support. And special ed teachers are are one of those groups that it's like there's on one hand, it's the national conversation about supporting teachers and, and having um, fair compensation. But then there's the more specific conversation about special education teachers and their workload and the amount of burden that's placed upon them without the support from their schools or from their districts. And that to me is like sort of a, um, a piece of the conversation that needs to not be just forgotten or overlooked in the national conversation about supporting teachers. Um, yeah, this is this is sad, man, because uh, I, I know the t special teachers that I know, they chose special education because they had uh, a, a truly um, individual, unique, personal connection to supporting those students. And they get into it with all these high hopes. And then it's just like a tidal wave of expectations and work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think everything you said there makes uh, certainly makes a lot of sense and resonates, I think, with with much of what I have seen and experienced and in my career as well. I'll, I'll just add that I think that um, it, we probably need to have a, a larger conversation, a seminar discussion around this topic of special yeah. ed. Um, and certainly the teacher shortage issues are, are part of that equation. But also there's there's just a massive bureaucratic uh you know weight upon yeah. the entire field of special education yeah. that is both really important 
because we live in a country with a pretty dark history around um, isolating, segregating, ostracizing students with disabilities right. um, that we have worked hard to try to get out of right. um, so that students can have access to school and to the curriculum, right? And to the social experience of, of being among their peers. Um, at the same time as we've created this monster that is, um, that is so onerous in some ways on special ed teachers, on administrators, uh, counselors in schools, particularly schools that serve high concentrations of students with special yeah. needs, um, where the resources really are not brought to bear to meet the need. Right. Um, and so I think there's a lot more to be discussed there. I will say, I guess in, in closing, there is some good news here. Uh, the state of California is, um, and particularly under uh, our new governor, Gavin Newsom's administration, right. is trying to take some steps to address this. So, um, you know, their uh, districts are thinking about paying bonuses uh, for special ed teachers or doing extra things to recruit them. Um, and the state is also investing $90 million to cover tuition fellowships for aspiring teachers who commit to teach subjects with chronic shortages, including kind of first and foremost, special education. So, right. um, you know, there's some some efforts being uh, put into place here to try to address this, but certainly a, a long way to go yeah. um, on this front. Yeah, I'm actually curious, maybe somebody um, in our audience could, could fill me in on this. I've only worked in schools where the special ed single subject teacher is doing the single subject teaching and also covering IEPs and the meetings and all that stuff. To me, it just, it would make sense if there were a teacher to focus on teaching math let's say or history or whatever and then a separate individual who's responsible for like the legwork of uh um, all the paperwork all the uh, bureaucracy that you mentioned to me that makes sense instead of it falling on one person to do the teaching and the bureaucratic pieces of it um but i don't know if there's schools out there that do it that way i know that would cost a lot because now you're talking two individuals for i guess theoretically one spot but to me that would make sense at least at the secondary level yeah, so I mean, how schools, districts, states approach this does vary some, um, yeah. and even by level, it's it uh, it can be very different. So at the elementary level here in Los Angeles, at least there tends to be a little more um, of a position from the district that might work across a couple of schools that mm -hmm. focuses almost entirely on um, kind of carrying out the IEP process. Right. Um, but the the components of the IEP kind of require different types of expertise. So if we were to completely separate the sort of administrative function of carrying out the IEP from the like diagnostic goal setting functions right. within the IEP that really requires someone who like knows the kid and watches them every yeah. day, um, you know, I think we might get a uh, yeah. get some unintended outcomes from right, right. from removing them from the process. Um, not to say there there aren't some like efficiencies and things that could be done better, but um, but yeah, it's a, this mm. is part of what I think we, it would be interesting to unpack, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. uh, yes, we want to attend to the needs. Yes, there's all these things that like we want to do and should do. Do we have the right resources and systems in place to actually carry them out in right. a day and age where the special education population is expanding uh, pretty significantly? So, yeah. um, you know, a lot to, lot to unpack there. All right. Sounds like an upcoming seminar. All right, Jeff, one last roll, one last roll, one last name on our roll sheet for today. All right. Who we got? Check it out. Who we got? Who we got? Ah, Fairfax County Public Schools. Okay. Like Fairfax Virginia? Yes, indeed. Northern Virginia? Okay. Yes, indeed. Um, right. Some of our listeners would say that our, our, our program here is very California-focused. And, you know, it might be. We are, you know, based in California. And uh, California also is at the forefront of a lot of the great things that are happening. Um, but, you and know, we, is also at the back front of a lot of the bad things that are happening. We don't need happening. to talk about that, Jeff. I don't know if that's a term. We don't need term, to talk about but... that part, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, of course, we are uh, interested in stories across the nation. And Fairfax County Public Schools um, appears to be perhaps at the forefront of um, this idea regarding student activism and student protests. So one of the largest school districts in the county, which is Fairfax uh, School District, which is in Northern Virginia, um, has about 189,000 students recently announced a policy to allow students to have one excused absence for taking part in quote unquote civic engagement, which could include marches, protests, things of that nature. Um, so if you'll recall, Jeff, um, recently, what, what was it, last semester in the fall, there was sort of a, a worldwide 
uh, March Amongst Youth for uh, Climate Change. And of course, uh, prior to that, we had March for Our Lives and, and a lot of national and international protests around certain issues. And students, of course, are missing school for that. So Fairfax County Public Schools wants to both encourage students to take part in civic engagement activities, but also uh, do it in a, a, a structured way, I suppose, with regards to their attendance. So they are allowing one excuse absence for participation in this. Um, this isn't going to be controversial at all. Right, Jeff? Not even slightly. I'm sure all of the, in particular, uh, conservative folks who have such great trust in the institution of public education oh, yeah. being fair and balanced uh, yeah. are just going to sit on their couch and not troll online about this at all. That's nice. That's a relief, actually. Yes, I know. Next subject. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, so, um, yeah, obviously there's conservative critics of this plan, um, and there's also um, critics, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, on both sides. Uh, conservative critics saying that this is basically schools enabling um, left-wing radical politics, since a lot of the marches and protests that have garnered attention over the last several years have been more on the left side of politics with regards to uh, gun violence and climate change. Then there are other folks who say this is like, you know, trying to systematize protest which by nature is against the system so so yeah i don't know what are your thoughts on this show yeah so i actually really appreciate it as a policy but i think um almost by definition mm -hmm. what uh what is happening here is uh is not like a revolutionary act right mm -hmm. so you know the in order to create and stoke the fires of social change um, there is some component of protest of disruption right. that that needs to be at play right if the system is like sure do that thing uh then like we don't really have a problem right? yeah um so i think it's i think it's a thoughtful responsible policy understanding that we are living in a time of great uh you know urgent broad social needs gun control climate change um poverty and wealth inequality uh the the uh impeachment of the president um you know the right. very functioning of what remains of our democracy right? right um like these are deep existential questions for which every person who has a stake in our society should care a lot right yeah. um and so to to be in a position where you're responsible for the education of young people and you are putting in structures that limit their participation in these spaces, yeah. uh, I think is not a good thing, right? Yeah, and so I yeah. think this is just a recognition that there is valuable learning to be done by students by experiencing stuff in the real world, not altogether, frankly, different than right. policies that make it's safe for students to go on field trips, right? Yeah. Like it's, it, I think to me, this falls in just the same kind of, uh, from a policy perspective, the same kind of experience. Now, the reality is, I think, as you said, um, most of the social movements that are, um, that are doing the kinds of things that are drawing lots of attention right now, um, that where students would take advantage of this policy are, are, uh, you know, more progressive causes at yeah. the moment. Although there are things like the, you know, the so-called March for Life, um, you know, I think yeah, that uh, just recently uh, took place uh, or is about to take place in, in Washington, uh, D.C. You have, you know, the alt-right folks and white nationalist folks and ostensibly a student could participate in, right. in, you know, in those kinds of things. In the state of Virginia, not long ago, um, we had a whole bunch of like, uh, armed militia folk who descended upon the Capitol there with the governor yeah. declaring a state of emergency. And one of the, you know, the students could have picked up an AR-15 and gone to the yeah, rally, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, the, the, the makers of this policy said, uh, and I quote, um, this is from uh, Fairfax school board member, Ryan Mc, uh, McElveen, um, said uh, that the policy uh, move wasn't meant to be political and that, quote, uh, we wrote the language so that it would be completely neutral and that students from all walks of life could participate. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I think there is some neutrality in here. Uh, it's probably going to mean kids do more progressive kinds of stuff than conservative kinds of stuff, because that's just the nature of right, how right. protest functions uh, in our society. And we have you know, fascist Republicans in charge of stuff. So they're not protesting. They're there you happy go. with what's going there on. There you go. Facts. Oh. That's facts. So um, to be clear, the policy itself, um, the way it's written up right now is a student would have to 
uh, notify the school two days ahead of time, submit a form, um, which is describing their their civic engagement that they'll be participating in. And they are supposed to report to school at least once during that day, like I guess some kind of check-in or something. And administrators at the school don't have the power to veto the um, proposal of what the student's gonna do. However, if there is anything that they find concerning, um, this policy is written up to, to send that to the regional superintendent mm. who will then um, take some kind of action, although that's not quite clear either. And I don't know what happens if a student goes through this and they take part in something for that day and then later on that school year something spontaneous happens because of unforeseen events and a student you know participates in that so does this make it an extra tough penalty to participate if you didn't submit the form or like, i don't know i'm just kind of curious what happens after that one day is up but you know sounds like a policy that is well intended like many but to have to as a social science teacher i'm just picturing myself you know teaching students to, you know, when you wanna go out and fight for change, you fill out this form, you bring it to the school administrator two days ahead of time, and while you're fighting for change, make sure you check into school that day, otherwise there could be consequences. Like, that just sounds ridiculous. So, yeah. Yeah, so, I hear you. Um, on the other hand, right, like, uh, if you wanna, you know, when, when Martin Luther King was getting ready to march, mm -hmm. like, they, they did go, uh, oftentimes, and, like, file for permits, That right? is, That part is true, yeah. Right, so there is, there is, I uh, totally understand the, like, um, <laughs> the, the tension that you're right. raising, um, but I don't think it's, like, inherently bad. I think that's where I was going with up front about, like, this is not mean like Fairfax County schools are like now revolutionary, right? right? This just means I think they're making space for students to engage in really powerful learning experiences outside of school. Yeah. So yeah. good for them. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. And um, interesting headlines, headlines there. And definitely um, regarding that special ed discussion, I would love to hear, uh, we would love to hear from some audience members regarding um, what the what the context is at your particular school or school site um, regarding special education and how that workload is, um, I guess, distributed. Um, but for now, we are heading towards our seminar where we will discuss LGBTQ plus youth in our schools and how schools could be supportive of their development and inclusive of those themes and issues in the curriculum. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Uh, I am super excited, as I mentioned earlier, that we have two incredible guests with us who are going to help us unpack uh, this really rich topic around how our schools do and do not serve the needs of our LGBTQ students. Um, so furthest uh, from my right uh, is Aaron Whalen. Uh, welcome, Aaron. Aaron is uh, the founding assistant principal uh, at Da Vinci Rise High School uh, here in the Los Angeles area. Um, it is a multi-campus school serving students in South LA and in Hawthorne. Um, who have experienced foster care, housing instability, probation, and other circumstances that have disrupted their journey in school. Uh, Rise was the recipient of the coveted $10 million startup grant from the XQ Super School Project, uh, which funds educators creating innovative new high schools. Uh, Aaron has been a teacher in Miami and Los Angeles, uh, a TFA core member advisor in Los Angeles and Phoenix. Uh, he likes the hot places, apparently, <laughs> um, and was a posse scholar at Grinnell, which is in a less hot place. Um, Aaron is uh, from a proud black Chicano and indigenous family um, here in L.A. and was born and raised in the city. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Um, and to my immediate right, we have Emily Grijalva. Uh, Emily is the restorative justice coordinator and sponsor of the Gender and Sexuality Alliance, or GSA, um, at Felicitas and Gonzalo Mendez High School in Boyle Heights. Um, she taught English for 12 years, where her pedagogy was rooted in social justice and in love, uh, which is just fantastic. We'll have to talk more about what that means. Um, and Emily received the United Way's Inspirational Teacher Award in 2014. Uh, she was recognized uh, in 2016 by the Obama administration's White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanics um, and won the Partnership for LA Schools Courageous Teacher Award in 2017. She is a UCLA Writing Project Fellow, uh, where she also earned her master's degree. She's a mom. Um, Elena is here in the studio <laughs> with us, so shout out to Elena for coming in uh, today. Um, and she is uh, the proud youngest daughter of 
Central American immigrants. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both for joining us here on All the Above and really excited to dig into today's conversation with you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you both for joining. Um, Emily, I believe you're the second UCLA Writing Project guest we've had uh-huh. or affiliated guests in the last uh, couple episodes because Min Jung Pai, uh, Min Jung Pei was a um, UCLA Writing Project fellow as and well. They, they actually just sent out the invitational, so I really encourage. It's an amazing professional development. Like, and it really makes you see yourself as a writer and really think about the writing strategies that you're bringing into your classroom. So I highly recommend it. All right. Dope. LA educators. Yes. Yeah. Be on the lookout. Yes. LA Writing Project in the house. Um, so, Aaron, let's start with you. Um, undoubtedly, schools or our profession has not served LGBTQ plus youth well at all historically throughout um, our school system. Um, what changes do you see schools doing now and what impact, if any, do you see happening Yeah, I think it's become a a larger part of the conversation when thinking about in 2011, California really spearheaded the conversation of incorporating LGBTQ history and um, just, you know, the the growth of um, kind of justice in that community into the curriculum. And but I would say that there's a lot of work to be done around what that looks like to implement. And so I think you can identify, you know, hundreds of LGBTQ people in history and teach about it. But are you speaking about the LGBTQ? LGBTQ part of that history and of that experience. Um, I also think that there is a lot of work to be done around creating strong and uh, brave spaces for staff members, because if staff members don't feel safe showing their identity, then how can they be strong models for youth? I think a lot of the times we do work in the way that is easiest, which is to teach a story, teach a tale, versus uh, what does it mean to make a safe space for staff members so that they can therefore model that for the youth in the building? Yeah, Emily, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this question also, Um, and especially as uh, being someone who is uh, intimately involved in creating at least one of those types of safer spaces on campus as well. Uh, Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm a really proud sponsor of our GSA. I love uh, my students. They're amazing. And they've done a lot of work to challenge um, the way that schools create those spaces for students. And a few years back, we were really active in the LGBTQ resolution that passed in LEUSD, which included um, asking for uh, more inclusivity in curriculum, especially in history, um, including students in history textbook adoption process to make sure that they are inclusive, having gender neutral restrooms, celebrating October as LGBTQ History Month, and also more training for staff members. Um, and so while it completely passed and we have it in paper, um, I'm currently part of the task force because even though that it did pass, not all schools are really owning the work. And I think that's where we're stuck right now. Like, how do we ensure that it is being carried out? Because um, even as much as I love the work that we've done at Mendes, like, we still have to do a lot of that work. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. We're like, how do we ensure LUSD, such a large district, is actually following through with the resolution? Yeah. Um, so I think I'd love to probe a little bit more on, like, um, you know, we've we've taken a lot of important steps, but it does still feel like there's a lot of work to still be done. And Emily, when you when you mentioned the gender neutral restrooms, I had a bit of a um, <clears throat> pardon me, a bit of a flashback uh, because another school, which I, I know you um, have done some some work with or know um, uh, in L.A. Uh, Santee High School, uh, I, I think had the district's first gender neutral yeah. restroom. And um, and I was actually called to that campus. This was a couple of years ago now, um, shortly after they opened the gender neutral restroom because just a really vitriolic hate group, essentially, um, that uh, carries itself as a, as a church, uh, showed up at the school yeah. with loudspeakers right around dismissal and, you know, just spewing the, the, the worst things you could, you know, could say. I mean, literally, like pointing at kids and being like, you're a fornicator and your mom is going to hell. I mean, terrible things, right? Which, of course, you know, you come to the hood and you start talking to kids you don't know that way also threatens to, like, start a riot, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, that was both, it was just strange, like, wow, we've taken this step forward and and as soon as we do, there's this uh, 
horrible response, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, anyways, you, you just, you made me think so much of the, like, uh, this combination of, like, wow, great, we're doing some yeah. things. And, then there's oh, backlash. my God, we have so much work <laughs> left to do. Yeah, uh, uh, GSA definitely learned from Santia a lot. I mean, they were so brave, and the students handled that situation amazingly. And I think it really helped that most of the staff were, you know, supportive. Um, and so when Mendes, a year later, fought for our multiple-style gender-neutral restroom, we really thought about, well, there needs to be um, some education done beforehand. So the students, you know, created surveys. They actually presented to every single class themselves, like about what does gender neutral even mean, first of all, why it's important. Um, and so a lot of the students were on board in that point, and then they also went out to the staff. And I think the hard part was there were actually some staff members that were not in favor of having a gender neutral restroom. And you know, as an educator, we want to protect our students. And they were a little like, wait, what? Like some of our own teachers don't even think we should have this. And so we had to have you know very courageous conversations around that. But for the most part, the majority of staff and the administration were completely on board. So we decided to kind of slow down the process and kind of like spend time serving, like educating, doing presentations um, before we actually then opened the gender neutral restroom. But, um, but yeah, definitely Santi like paved the way for that. As far as other schools now, um, most schools have a gender neutral restroom, but accessibility and visibility is an issue. So I've heard from other students in other schools saying that they have to look for an administrator to open this like random, you know, bathroom that's hidden. And so, um, again, some work's been done, but not all schools have um, a very accessible gender neutral restroom. Yeah, I think a huge challenge, too, is we want our schools to be emblematic of a world that doesn't yet exist. Right. We want it to be a place where our youth can be safe and they can feel comfortable when we know, in fact, for many of them walking out of the doors of our schools, there's a different reality that yeah. they have to face. And so I think something that Emily spoke to beautifully was like, how do we prepare them adequately <laughs> for walking out into the world in their truth? And while also showing them that there is a possibility for a community that can be more accepting and loving. And yeah. it's like that balance, right, of how we do those things at the same time. Um, and I think that's a huge challenge in education because at uh, times we want to be on the forefront of changing those realities, but um, it takes a world to do. Yeah. And so we have to kind of do both. Yeah, and I, well. and I remind our youth that they're like way ahead of us. Like the adults are barely catching up, even with like the vocabulary, new identities. Um, you know, and I'm really proud that a lot of our youth are coming up with more ideas of gender fluid right like being more gender fluid being more open and the adults are barely starting to catch up so sometimes you know i kind of we have to talk about those frustrating moments about why the adults aren't where they are ready to be now and i think you've both spent most of your career serving marginalized communities and i i teach at a school that's almost entirely black and latinx population and a few years ago we had um i think we we're the first school in the area to have a uh, transgender prom queen and teaching in a marginalized context and supporting LGBTQ youth comes with its own sort of intersectional challenges. And in, in, in my memories of, of our prom queen being selected and just seeing, you know, sort of, sort of the, the transphobia and the homophobia that comes within the black community and within the uh, Latinx community. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that, that, the challenge of supporting LGBTQ plus youth in addition to serving in a marginalized context and sort of those intersections that, that are there. It's a huge question. Yeah, yeah go ahead. We always ask huge <laughs> questions here. <laughs> um, so I uh, work in Boyle Heights, so it is predominantly Latinx. Um, definitely uh, most of our families are immigrant, majority uh, Mexican descent, but we do have Central American. Um, many of our families are religious, um, can be conservative. And so, yes, that's something that I have to be very mindful. And so we have these conversations, especially with my GSA, where um, they don't tell their parents they're in GSA, right? Like, they're just not there yet. They don't feel safe coming out. They're at a chess club. They're getting tutoring. Like, there's, you know, whatever. And that's fine. Like, they don't have to, um, you know, the, the whole coming out process um, is a very a vulnerable and sacred one. And so when they're ready and they feel that they have the safety, they can, but um, that's something that I have to constantly navigate. So, some, but 
a lot of our families are accepting and that's also amazing um, but a lot of it is them needing resources so i've worked with some um, latina moms whose um, children are transitioning and they just mm. don't know like what the process is so mm. making sure that we have access to um you know those resources what is what does it mean to have their child's chosen name and gender pronouns respected and it's something that i've had to learn to navigate to within the school system to support them so it's like i've seen a mixture of both i've seen um, parents be super like supportive um but then also some cases where students are just going to wait for college you know or like yeah. you know when they feel a little bit better i also appreciate that in bull heights we do have um you know organizations like latino Quality Alliance who are trying to do more like public campaigns, provide support groups for parents. Um, they've come and done education series for our parent center. So I think that there's definitely, um, you know, growth, um, but it is something that we have to be consistently mindful for our student safety. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of cocooning that happens in the in the school where a student mm -hmm. does feel comfortable enough to share those pieces of their identity or discover through it with you. Um, but they know what that is, it's not what does that mean cocooning safe. cocooning yeah. um, where they found a safer, brave space where they can develop and grow and learn and explore their identities and how they're you know, how they're processing through it all, where, in fact, when they go home, right, that's where um, they morph they have to code switch and change into what is expected of them um i think just in thinking about the intersectionalities between identity and lgbtq um youth and foster care right la has the large one of the largest if not the largest population of foster youth in the country um many of those are lgbtq youth right from being kicked out on the streets after coming out and so it's an it's a reality that our youth are aware of it's something that they've seen happen before and so even if um their families may be more accepting than they re even realize. It's a narrative that they've seen play out with friends, with family members. And so that becomes a overarching kind of deterrent from becoming who they are or, or showing who they are in the public eye. I think LA LGBT Center has an incredible job um, providing beds and housing for youth um, in that situation. But LA also has very, very few beds. And so it can be really, really challenging. So I think about the resources necessary to you know, allow for a community where students can take that risk and, and kind of, um, you know, come out in that way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually wondering if you can maybe go a, a little bit deeper on that, Aaron, because um, your your school, uh, Rise High School, was founded to serve specifically that type of population, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, correct me if, if, you know, if you think this is an unfair description, but I kind of think of it as like within the marginalized students of LA, you're serving the marginalized students who are, who have been marginalized from that system. Right. Uh, so like sort of multiple layers of marginalization and, um, and yet students who are trying to make it work um, in school. And uh, you know, it, for me to think about being, a student who's struggling, you know, with housing or struggling with, um, you know, uh, the the challenges that come with being in the foster system, and with navigating my identity, you know, in terms of sexuality or gender identity, and figuring out how to like go to English and and get my credits right, uh, it's just there's a lot going on there. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the uniqueness of that um, population and some of the things your your school does to to create the cocoons or you know um, those sorts of things to to help students find a way yeah i mean i would say firstly like self-discovery is often stunted when you're thinking about your basic needs right and so when thinking about like maslow's hierarchy when you're looking thinking about survival your, your self-discovery, your ability to discover self and to express is often really, really stunted because you're, you're a baby trying to survive in a world without resources. And so I think for a lot of our incredible youth, they've started to learn how to transcend that, where they started to think about how can we discover ourselves, How can we um, understand who we are in this world while also um, finding resources along the way, which I, it, it blows me away. It like, keeps me in this work is to see kids do that because I, I don't know if I could have done that um, growing up at that age. And so I think that is a huge process in that we want to take away all of those boundaries that stop our kids from discovering themselves, right? So let's take care of food, let's take care of your ride, let's take care of safety so that we can start having conversations about who you are. Um, we can start looking into how you're feeling and how you're processing. And I think that unfortunately that's some of the most frustrating parts about being an educator is that you want to take away all those boundaries from your kids, but our job is to, you know, educate the student but often we wear the hat of a nurse we wear the hat of a counselor we wear the hat of a social worker mm -hmm. and so 
that's why the school exists is because we realized that youth in foster care, youth on probation, youth on the streets and in homeless shelters weren't able to reach that level of self-discovery because they're they're out there fighting in the world. And so that's inequitable because then they become 18, all of their resources stop. And then the world is asking them who they are, how, you know, how can they help support the world that never supported them? But we didn't give them any baseline of resources or support along the way. And so I think obviously that that's all youth, right, in those situations. But when you think about LGBTQ youth, they become 18, they, they go out into the world, and then they've had none of the incredible resources that Emily's a part of providing for them, right, any of those identity work and, and uh, self-empowerment. But then the world is asking them these questions um, while also not providing any means or resources for how to make that healthy. And so I think that at RISE, we're consistently trying to say, how do we take those blockages away from you so that you can just be a student? I think it's a privilege and we forget sometimes to just be a student. And like my mom used to be say, your job is to be a student. I didn't realize until working in education for so long that that's a huge privilege for me to be like, I don't have to worry about anything else but being a student um, is something that is not given to every everyone. And so we try to get our kids as close to that so that then they can say, well, okay, well, now in all of this, who am I? Um, and, and what are parts of my identity that I still need to discover and express? Yeah. Um, so recently, uh, an LGBTQ activist, uh, from the UK, uh, at least that's how his Twitter uh, account identifies himself. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexander, uh, Leon, um, had a tweet that, that went viral. Um, and there was a quote there that I, I thought was pretty provocative and, and would love to read it and get your your take on like the ways in which um, uh, this experience plays out uh, for students in, in our city and, and in your schools um, and what schools can do to interrupt this kind of experience. So he said that queer people don't grow up as ourselves. We grow up playing a version of ourselves that sacrifices authenticity to minimize humiliation and prejudice. The massive task of our adult lives is to unpick which parts of ourselves are truly us and which parts we've created to protect us. So, you know, that really, you know, I was just thumbing through Twitter and mm-hmm. saw it and was like, ooh, that's, that's deep. We need to talk about that when we have uh, Emily and Aaron on. Um, but would love to, to hear your thoughts about how that plays out in school. Yeah, I thought that it was a very heartbreaking uh, quote when I read it. And I think that um, as an educator, uh, we're committed to making sure our students feel seen, heard, loved, supported. And, um, you know, and I think you kind of spoke to that, that sometimes the outside world is not a very safe space. So if they're, you know, having to wear a mask and like, you know, perform, um, and then they walk into the school, like our hope is that they don't, they can, you know, let some of that, the guard down and be themselves. And if they don't feel that, um, then we're doing a disservice. Right. And I think of, um, that being extremely traumatic, like, you know, I don't, as a cisgendered woman, right, like I have that privilege where I don't know what it's like to, um, you know, face abuse, humiliation, violence, um, because I am not, you know, subscribing to a box, I'm not subscribing to a binary. And so um, I think that that just reminded me of how important it is starting from elementary that we have uh, inclusive curriculum that we have, uh, where students can see themselves and know that you know, that they matter and that they've been here forever and, you know, and they can move on to great things. But if they're just constantly hiding themselves, I, I mean, you know, we, we can look at all the research about LGBTQ students, you know, um, who have like high rates of absenteeism, academic failure, right? Something's dropping out, um, you know, just not wanting to be in school because it is not a safe space. And so I think, um, that quote shows that this is what then they become those adults who are trying to figure themselves out because school just wasn't that space of discovery. It wasn't that space of support. And so that is us failing as educators. Yeah, that quote made me think about the manifestations of that silencing. Mm -hmm. Um, We often see chronic absenteeism, huge in LGBTQ youth. We see um, violence and aggression and fighting um, or the, almost opposite which is like the withdrawal 
where it's like the, the, the mute almost um, yeah. not to speak because my identity is something that's not appreciated. And so I think about we often see the manifestations and the school is told to punish those manifestations mm-hmm. um, while not addressing and turning a mirror to what community are we creating and what might that be a manifestation of. And so I think about um, how we can look at our discipline systems, how we can look at our counseling and, and the numbers of counselors. Most schools have one counselor to what, like 800 kids. And so how do we create a system to support that? Um, it also made me think about, again, going back to staff trainings and staff development. Again, if you're a, a person, an LGBTQ person, I know the first two years I was in the classroom, I didn't tell any kids that I was, I was gay ever. Um, and it was something that I knew that I could be fired. Um, it was something that was taught, told to me before that mm-hmm. to not do that, to not share that. And then I think about the youth that I served in my classroom and what that meant could have meant to them, um, what that could have been to say, oh, someone else is brave and, and speaking out about who they are, or just having a picture of me and my partner on the desk, right? Things that, that um, cisgender or a heteronormative folks do and don't think twice. Um, we are often, even as adults, even working with kids, even doing identity work, we we hide those things. And so I think I often have to reflect on my in myself now in the leadership position of, of being, you know, assistant principal. What are things that I'm not, that I might be doing if it were more normative in the world? What are things that even now I'm still not thinking about? What is my background on my phone? Do I care if it's face up when my students see it and it's me and my partner? Um, is it, you know, do I care about the background of my computer? Do I care about when we're talking about family structures, what mine looks like versus what, you know, the other teachers might look like? And so I think that our own identity work and self-work and being visible and being proud can do a lot more than we often give credit for. But that starts at the top. That starts at folks who are hiring and then that starts from, and so if we don't do it up here, we can't keep looking down at our students, down, figuratively. Um, we can't keep looking to our kids really up and, and expecting them to do this work and to be comfortable and to create the environment amongst each other if we're not modeling the exact same thing. Because I, I mean, they're watching all the time. And so I think we have to consistently think about that. Right. Well, let's talk about the sort of on high in terms of policy, in terms of legislation, in terms of um, our education system as a whole. There's been some progress recently with regards to um, inclusive curriculum, at least in in certain states like California, in terms of certain legislation to uh, protect LGBTQ youth. Um, But on a systemic level, what what more do you think needs to happen um, in order to advance the cause for, for all of our youth? So definitely the policy is there, right? We have the Fair Education Act, right? Where we're supposed to be showing the contributions socially, uh, politically, economically that LGBTQ folks have done. Um, We have the California Healthy Youth Act where our sex ed should be um, comprehensive, inclusive, and include discussion and workshops around gender identity and um, sexual orientation. Um, and I mentioned like the LGBTQ resolution through LUSD. So we do have the framework. We do have the resources. There is so much, um, you know, just different workshops and curriculum that's out there. But like I mentioned, I just like, I'm like, it's in paper, but I'm not like, I'm starting to get a little frustrated and impatient at like that. It's not being fully carried out. And I think I agree that it kind of needs to start from the top too. Like I feel that a lot of administrators need to own the work and they need to get educated and aware of why this is so important so that they're making sure that it is a priority in their schools. Um, Also teachers, support staff. Um, I've had awkward situation even with our school police, not understanding why we have a gender neutral restroom. And I'm like, wait, what? Like it's the law lady. Like, Mm. so I think like a lot of times it's like, Oh, like people aren't like, yes there's policy in place and it's supposed to be happening but it's not so there's a lot that needs to be done and i think i mean all those policies lay out an amazing framework amazing ideas like it's there but it's just the rolling out if the you know the administrators and educators aren't owning the work it's just not going to happen yeah i think it has to be a component of training and professional development for Mm -hmm. all staff in a school yeah and i think about what burden are we placing on our youth if they're discovering their own identities they're discovering the the terminology and the words for it but then they have to continuously educate the adults and so i think if we're not following suit Mm -hmm. in saying okay we are going to also discover and understand these facets of not only our own identities but the identities in the building then we're just doing a disservice we're again pointing to the kids and saying you guys do the work and we're going to watch and we're going to pick up pieces that we feel comfortable with 
and then uh, we'll incorporate as needed. And that's not that's not fair. That's not going to ever be a system that is just or right for kids. So I think, yeah, it, the legislation is there. The the framework is there. Um, like just like desegregation, like the framework is there. <laughs> yes. um, but in yeah. practice, like how do we actually slowly process through this and do the work that's uncomfortable? I think often in when we see uh, education, we've always felt, you know, there's a lot of systems that we're placed against that are unfair. And so sometimes things like this can feel unfair for, for educators, right? Oh, another thing that I'm having to learn about and discover and worry, worry about, or um, this goes against my personal morals and values. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, okay, well, let's have a conversation around maybe like who should be educating youth? Um, and then what does that mean? I think we need a, a systematic change there first, which is more uncomfortable. So I'd love to just um, follow up a little bit on, on what you were just sharing about this idea that, you know, we have things on paper that, uh, that tell us what the new normal should be, and yet behavior, decision-making, practices are not always in line with that. Um, and I wonder if you can give an example or two of like, uh, that would maybe help our audience understand like what would it look like mm -hmm. to act differently in accordance with what we are saying on paper is how we need to behave now in a way that is better and healthier for our LGBTQ youth. Um, so for sure ways that at my high school that we've been trying to push um, some of these policies in place. Um, so one, having a gender neutral restroom, multiple stall in a visible, easily accessible place. Um, that was really, you know, like I said, we had our principal support. Um, so that was major. Um, I think another area has been around professional development. So when I was a teacher, I spent, you know, basically those 12 years never, ever, like, receiving some kind of professional development around how to best support LGBTQ youth. Um, I was never encouraged to, like, seek it out on my own, and so I kind of had to do that. And it can be kind of lonely, but, you know, like, I went out of my way to try to educate myself, and so... Um, you know, I brought it up to local school leadership. I was like, we need to include professional development. And so we were able to, you know, include, we invited Latino Equality Alliance. They did a workshop to our staff and it was the first PD of the year. So that was also major that we were setting the tone that this was an important topic and so they address homophobia we talked about like how we can address homophobic language in the classroom how we can support our youth um, and then there was another time where GSA took over the English and history PD and they brought in resources from one, one archive and other resources they talked about why it was important to them and we were able to give teachers you know what do teachers always say they need time and resources <laughs> so they were given that to lesson plan and the students kind of sat with the teachers to like balance off ideas and so that was really impactful because the students were also involved in that change um, so those are a few instances where we've tried to um kind of like push forward also our sex education making sure that it is comprehensive um, I literally had to stand up and say we're breaking the law <laughs> like the California Health Youth Act like we need to be comprehensive and so luckily local school leadership agreed and so those are a few times where we've had to like really push um, but it's usually just a few people doing the work. Yeah, yeah, I think we always want to be preventative and um, create spaces where youth can share. So thinking about like community circles within advisories or within spaces where they're talking about um, issues facing marginalized communities. I think that's obviously one piece. But I would say to some of the more like restorative or um, reactive pieces, I think my favorite question that happens in a school is whose job is it? Right. And so I, I think I've been in schools where there will be a hate crime or there will be slander on the walls um, around LGBTQ uh, identities and it's always the question is the principal looking at us whose job is it the teachers looking at each other whose job is it and then usually mm. it falls on the gsa which yes. is again not fair <laughs> like, it's um, again right again not <laughs> fair and so, <laughs> yeah so i think that was when i went into leadership and and became an assistant principal that was the biggest thing I wanted to change is we had it we had an incident where there was some slander on one of the walls addressing a teacher um, who I who out and identifies as um, LGBTQ and so in that moment I think we had an opportunity to say that's when we're going to do something different um, myself and the principal we said it's like it's our job yeah. <laughs> this is like we need to own this and not only that but you can't put it on on the, the shoulders of other people especially youth who have who are in that identity group and feel those um 
it, it could be emotionally taxing to take on the job of now educating others and then standing up for those who are hurt. Um, and so what we did is we ultimately had community circles with every single advisory in the school to talk about what was said, why, um, why it's not okay, and then kind of get insight from students around what they were feeling, what they were thinking, um, what their agreement was, not to say what's right or wrong, but to have a conversation about from us, like having that conversation facilitated by us really coming from kids around how our school can be a place that is safe and brave and why that's a representation of not of that not being safe and brave. And so I think if we're not willing to jump to the classroom as administrators, if we're not willing to have conversations with families um, and to get in uncomfortable situations, then it will always fall on GSA. It will always fall on the community that it actually should not be. I, I think when there is a hate crime or when there is an incident that is really uh, painful for an identity group, it should not automatically be looked at them to solve it because often mm -hmm. it's an issue with all of the other people and other identity groups. <laughs> and so I think if, until we get that mentality and we look at that in leadership, um, that will continue to be a problem and legislation is not going to cut it if we don't think of it in that lens. Yeah. So last question, and I think in some ways builds on, on what you were just sharing, Aaron, which is, what do educators and the adults uh, working in, in our schools need to know or do in order for us to have the schools that our LGBTQ youth deserve? I mean, I think um, representation matters, right? Um, making sure that your curriculum and instruction is uh, inclusive. Um, I'll, get, I'll shout out another professional development. Uh, the UCLA uh, History Geography Project collaborates with One Archive, and every summer they actually pay the teachers a stipend to come and do lesson plans around, um, you know, for U.S. history teachers specifically, but it's open to other subjects as well. And you get to be um, in the One Archive space, and that has the largest database of uh, LGBTQ materials. And you get to create lessons, and you get paid for it and then you share these lessons and they post them so I feel like you know accessing those workshops that are there um, reaching out and doing your own education because it shouldn't be the students you know um, and even myself like I remember the first time a student wrote in her essay that she was pansexual and I hadn't heard that word yet so I had to go and educate myself around like what are some of the new terms that are coming up um, you know and so I think that teachers should be constantly making sure that they're aware of the changes and trends and um, and really do the work and also if we have administrative support that's key but I really hope that uh, more and more educators realize that this is part of our job in serving our students. Absolutely. I would agree. I would say consistently do the identity work necessary to transgress what you grew up knowing. Um, I think until we understand, I think until we really like consider the education field and professionalize it like we would the medical field or we would law, like we need to consistently grow and learn and develop. And if we're in a school and we're not growing, learning, and developing, we're hurting people <laughs> um, because the world is learning and changing and so I think until we create a space where it's like you are consistently learning and developing um, and understanding yourself so that you can therefore serve others um, I think that's the necessary step all right well thank you both for this um, <clears throat> conversation for coming on our show um, Jeff I believe we have one-on-one -on -one interviews with them as well that we do that we do yeah. where are folks going to find that uh on our website which is uh, aotashow.com again that's aotashow.com where you can find all of our content uh everything we ever make uh is available there um and you can watch listen subscribe um and support the show uh share it with those who might also be interested in a conversation uh like this as well um, but definitely want to thank uh, Aaron and thank Emily for joining us here Indeed. today uh, on all the above. I think our our streak, Manuel, of having yeah. uh, only the the dopest of dope educators <laughs> yeah. uh, on the show is fully intact after oh, yeah. this conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, so thank you for Adding that. Adding a thousand, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but really appreciated having you here and uh, just so much uh, to to think about um, and, uh, you know, sign, signs for hope and a call to action, perhaps, around uh, meeting the needs of our LGBTQ youth. So uh, thanks for joining us, folks. And next up is our class dismissed.
All right, folks, it is time now for our class dismissed, where we like to give a little shout out to some folks in our field who are doing noteworthy and amazing things uh, all across the country or really even across the world. Indeed. Manuel, who we got today? So today um, we have an educator who actually hails from the great state of uh, Minnesota. One of two dope educators I know from Minnesota. I'm sorry, what state was that? Minnesota. Oh, okay. Yeah, you mean the the great state of Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just just making clear. Yeah. Actually, Minnesota has a lot of dope educators. They do, don't they? Yeah, quite a few. Or should I and say, you. we do, don't <laughs> we? <laughs> All right. So um, this is the 2018 or today's class is This shout out goes to the 2018 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, Kelly D. Holstein who during the National Football Championship game, which was attended by your president, Donald Trump. Not my um, president. Not your my president, president, Donald Trump. Uh, Holstein, number 45. Holstein was among a number of acclaimed teachers being honored at the National Championship game between Louisiana State University and Clemson University in New Orleans. And during the national anthem, she took a knee. The educator later took to Twitter to speak on it, saying that she chose to kneel because she had, quote, a platform to stand up for marginalized and oppressed people. She wrote, like many before, I respectfully kneeled during the national anthem because no one is free until we are all free. She also added the hashtag I'm with cap, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag LGBTQ. President Trump, I don't believe, said anything about this, although he was in attendance. Um, Jeff, what what do you think about this? I love it. I want to give some serious props uh, to Miss Holstein. Holstein? Holstein, I believe. Uh, however it's pronounced. I hope I'm saying it correctly. I want to give serious props to her uh, because, look, I think this was an opportunity to use a national platform to make a very clear, very right. understood political statement. There's some risk involved, right, for yeah. her. And, um, you know, and I appreciate the solidarity. It, uh, you know, it kind of reminded me of the same way that Megan Rapino, you know, took it mm. upon herself in a different, you know, kind of a different venue as a right. different type of professional to use the platform she's given to make this statement, right? right. Um, and so I, I like deeply appreciate it on a personal level. I think it's an effective way. Use the tools you have to, to deliver a message. And so I respect it. And I love that she's from Minnesota because you know hmm. i'm from minnesota and and um so i think it's dope uh yeah. i i want to like congratulate her and appreciate her for doing this I, I really think it's great yeah absolutely i agree and state teachers of the year are invited each year um to the white house to meet the president and she's one of only two this year who boycotted that trip to the white house basically citing the um an immense amount of trauma that this president has inflicted on her marginalized students and student population. I do wonder if she realized or if she knew that the president would be attending this game because it, it you know, I've, I watch a lot of college football and it was, um, it was unannounced and it was a surprise. So when I was watching the game and the president came out with the first lady, um, I was surprised by that because I didn't realize he'd be at the game. And of course, going back to the world series where he attended a game, um, the national and uh, a nationals game and he was booed widely and roundly and soundly by that stadium um since then he's attended two other um well two football sporting events both in very red states both in the deep south and um he got a lot of cheers but he also had this knee yeah i mean so whether she knew you know if she did know right and she did it because she knew dope. then i'm like word props yeah, like exactly. much respect like exactly you know take it to the man right uh and if she didn't know still props and respect yeah. because she's in you know louisiana i yeah. think the game was in yeah, new yeah. orleans right mm -hmm. so she's in louisiana um and you know making a very clear statement she's right. a, here's a teacher who serves students who are being directly negatively impacted by the policies in, put in place by right. this country. So whether she knew Trump was going to be there or not, the statement was important and appreciated. And I love yeah. it. Dope. All right. So shout out to Kelly D. Holstein. Hopefully we're saying your name right. Uh, keep up the great work. Folks, on our website, we're going to link you to a uh, TED Talk that she gave. And, um, of course, her, her tweets and statements around this. But also on our website, you'll find links to uh, most of the, well, all of the stories that we reported on earlier this episode. But also links to our YouTube channel where you can see one-on-one -on -one interviews with today's very dope guests. And that's a YouTube video extra exclusive so um you know definitely check those out it's youtube.com slash all of the above all one word or just go to the website aota show 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com and you'll see the page for this episode with all the links and all the extras right there for you. And that about does it for this week, Jeff. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks for joining us, folks. Indeed. We'll see you next time. All right, folks. Take it easy.